This is The Red Line, where we talk to three expert witnesses on one issue shaping the news both here and overseas. In the wide universe, the only constant seems to be change. But there are a few nations in the last half century that have gone through more changes than the nation of Venezuela. In the space of less than a century, the country has gone from the backwater of Colombia to the jewel of South America. It became the richest country in the Latin world, with the Venezuelan Bolivar almost at parity with the US dollar. And now things have completely changed again. The country is now in ruins, with daily murders, coup attempts, and the Bolivar at such a point in its inflation where it's easier to just weigh the currency rather than count it. How did we get here? What brought this Icarus-like tale upon the Venezuelan people? And what comes next for this small Latin American nation with the highest proven oil reserves in the world? Well, for that, we turn to our first guest. Part one, Icarus lives. You know, I'm smiling as I say this because my I have very fond memories, obviously, having grown up there, uh, of the weather. So I remember whenever I would go back, the first thing that would hit you is like the heat. Giancarlo Fiorello is an investigative reporter who specializes in Venezuela and Latin America for the Bellingcat Institute. He also runs the amazing website invenezuela.com. And he joins us today. So the, the history of Venezuela, and in particular the economic history of Venezuela, is tied to oil. Um, so oil was discovered there early, it was exploited there early, we're talking you know, the early part of the 20th century. And um, throughout the 1950s and the 1960s and into the 70s, um, Venezuela's fortunes were, were rising with the, with the rising price of oil. So one of the fond memories that an older Venezuelan person might have of this time um, is that you know there was a lot of construction, um, so a lot of the a lot of the public works that that are still standing in Venezuela were built during the 1950s using this oil money. Uh, when we came out of the dictatorship in 1958, uh, we had a succession of democratic governments, and they also uh, were able to take advantage of 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 this oil revenue. So from the 50s to the early 90s, the U.S. had a much better relationship with Venezuela particularly after the Arab oil embargo of 1973, where many of the Arab states stopped sending the USA oil. Uh, this was in retaliation for its support of Israel. This forced a huge oil shortage in the country and a subsequent crisis across the Western nations. So to make up for the shortfall, the US began importing large amounts of external oil from Venezuela. Was this the main reason the US was so friendly with the government in Caracas at that point in time? The US had an interest in keeping the Venezuelan government's uh, friendly precisely for this situation that you de described um, um, in order to have a, an, an alternative source of oil in case something happened in the Middle East. Well, you know, you would still have Venezuela uh, at the, you know, as the next door neighbor. So during this period, how did the average Venezuelan standard of living compared to its Latin American neighbors? Venezuela in the 1960s and 70s was an exceptional case, not just in, in terms of living standard, which was which was higher than than the neighboring countries, but also the fact that it wasn't 
um, uh, you know, weighed down by conflict, right? So anywhere else you looked in Latin America throughout this period of time, again, the 60s and the 70s, you had coups, you had counter coups, you had the military taking over, and then another general would show up the next day and take over. So, so you know, while Colombia was, was experiencing, you know, the, the start of its conflict that lasted decades, um, um, you know, Brazil had a military dictatorship, a succession of military dictatorships. Same thing in Chile, same thing in Argentina. Uh, Venezuela was an island of stability, political stability and economic stability uh, throughout this time. And so, the, the, you know, this, the standard of living was high. Uh, the Bolivar was on parity with the U.S. dollar for a while. Um, and, um, it, you know, it's one of those things where when you talk to people who, who lived through that time, um, they describe a, a country that was prosperous, that was on on the rise, and and and, and um, had a really really bright uh, future ahead of it, or or so it seemed at that time. So staying on changes, let's talk about one of the biggest changes for Venezuela. In the 1999 election, Hugo Chavez becomes president of Venezuela. So can you tell us a bit more about the circumstances that brought Chavez to power in the country? Yeah, so this period of stability that I've described um, that started in the 60s and lasted into the 70s began to start to get really wobbly in the 1980s. Uh, there was a, um, a collapse of oil prices that, that led to a financial crisis in, the gov in Venezuela. Um, and um, there was a government that was attempting to introduce what we would call today austerity measures, um, rice, um, increasing the price of gasoline, uh, which sparked a series of riots. Um, and um, that that was what closed off the 1980s. So this sort of um, really kind of rose rose tinted glasses um, a period of Venezuelan history of, of relative stability came to a crashing end at the end of the 1980s. And um, a lot of the inequality that had been building uh, throughout this period, uh, because there was inequality, right? Obviously, like all this money that was coming into the country wasn't being distributed e equally among, among everybody, right? So you had an increasingly large urban poor population. Um, and that tension that had been building during those decades came to a boil at the, at the end of the 1980s. And that's really when Hugo Chavez, who was at that time a, a, a military officer, um, sort of started to think about how that wasn't a way to run a society, right? Like how this, the story goes is that he, he, he got the idea for, you know, trying to bring about some kind of change uh, so that the country would benefit uh, um, uh, the poor, the people who had been neglected for so long. So in 1992, you see uh, Chavez launch a, a coup d'etat against the, uh, the government at the time. The coup failed, Chavez was imprisoned. And um, he, he, with the coup, he was a bit of a Robin Hood figure. So he burst into the national scene. And because Venezuelans were becoming aware of these inequalities and of the fact that the, you know, the government uh, wasn't taking full advantage of all the money that was coming in because it was a lot of corruption, uh, Chavez became a, a bit of a Robin Hood figure. He was released from prison in 1995. And when he came out of jail, he said, you know what, I'm going to uh, run on this popularity that I have, I'm still going to try to bring about change to the country, but I'm going to do it at the at the ballot boxes. And so he ran for president. So he came uh, to the presidency at the end of the 1990s, riding a wave of discontent with the political establishment, with the way that the country had been mismanaged. Um, and and he was wildly popular when he was first elected. People saw him as like the change candidate, the, the person who was going to upend the inequality 
and the, and the neglect that a, an increasingly large segment of the population had been feeling for for decades. And what policies was he running on? What was he taking to the election? When people think about Chavez today, they 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 remember the the guy with the red beret and the military uniform, giving the kind of the fiery speeches on television, um, uh, being a military leader, right? Uh, but his early appearances in the media, his early speeches were very subdued. Um, he would always sort of be in a suit, uh, you know, very much a civilian leader. And um, his his early proposals weren't revolutionary in in, in the sense that we've come um, to see him now. So we saw in in the early Chavez years of a sort of a timid revolutionary leader, if I can say that, um, who was proposing change, um, namely the, the the inclusion of the poor in the country's political project. So he he was claiming to represent the poor, to speak for the poor, to speak for for the segment of our population who who had been, as I said, neglected for so long by the political class. This changed dramatically over the course of his presidency, and he became a lot closer to the socialist government in Cuba, uh, where he actually started to become a bit of an enemy to the United States. What do you think pushed Chavez towards Havana, and what radicalized his positions? I think the cutoff between like the early Chavez presidency and the later Chavez presidency was the uh, coup attempt in 2002, right? So there was a period of a couple of days when Chavez was removed from power. Um, and he was brought back to power uh, in part by like a popular uprising, right? So there was uh, a tremendous amount of outpouring of, of people onto the streets after he was removed from power uh, in April of 2002. Uh, of people saying like you, you know you can't get rid of him right like we've we've elected him our hopes are riding on him that he's going to change things um, and of course that coup it, it was was uh, connected you know very directly to the United States and 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 an interest from the from the United States to like reverse I think what they saw as a change in the political direction of the country right and so I think after that time Chavez realized that his budding political project was under a tremendous amount of, of, of danger. It was threatened uh, by the, you know, the most powerful country in the world, right? And so that's when I think he started to become more militant, when he started to look more closely to Cuba, um, and when he started to, to uh, you know, have the mentality, I think, partially correctly, that like we are under attack. And so the cementing of what would become, I think, an authoritarian um, government really, I think, began in, in 2002 uh, after that coup. In the following years, Chavez went on to buy huge swathes of the Venezuelan economy, like manufacturing, transport, the banks, and even the country's crown jewel, the national oil company now called PDVSA. Why would he use government money to buy up so much of the Venezuelan economy? Aside from whatever political, ideological uh, considerations Chavez was taking uh, when he was expropriating assets, there was also the question of, of, as I said earlier, like, how do I, what can I do to make sure that I don't get kicked out of power again, right? And so Chavez, um, you saw this in PDVSA, you see it today, Chavez started appointing people to leadership roles in these expropriated companies, not because they were experts in their field or because they, you know, they had climbed through the ranks as they were, in, you know, for example, at PDVSA, like, oh, this guy was an oil engineer who's been climbing through the company for 40 years and now he's going to be the head of it. Chavez started prioritizing, putting people in, in leadership positions, even in these businesses who were just loyal to him, right? And so you start to see a high proportion of of, of, of roles that really should be civilian roles, like the head of PDVSA, for example, PDVSA is an oil company, 
uh, these roles are starting to go to, to uh, army officers, right? And, and I think that was part of Chavez's project to and like enrich himself power by putting people who he knew was, were loyal to him in positions of power within the Venezuelan um, economic sector. So before we get into the death of Chavez, what do you think his biggest legacy will be on Venezuela? Yeah, that's a really tough question. So whatever happens after Maduro's gone, you know, whether there's a succession, like another PSUV leader, if if we ever have like a non-PSUV president in Venezuela again, I think I think whatever happens, we cannot go back to the time where the poor were so neglected, both economically and politically. So I think Chavez's greatest legacy is the fact that he turned towards these marginalized populations in Venezuela, and he said, "Look, you've been ignored by the ruling class for so long. I'm going to bring you in to politics, the political sphere." Um, so I think, I hope, I would really hope that whatever, you know, if we ever get an opposition government in power, they don't reset the clock to pre-1998. So in March of 2013, Hugo Chavez dies of cancer and the news goes out across the country and his hand-picked successor, Nicolas Maduro, takes over the reins. Why do you think Chavez picked Maduro to be his successor? I, you know, I think every Venezuelan person will tell you like they remember exactly where they were when they heard that he died. I was in a car with my brother and my mom. Shortly before he died, there's a, there's a television address where he goes, you know, he says, you know, I'm going to Cuba for treatment, guys. Uh, and if, you know, if anything happens to me, you know, nothing's going to happen, I'm going to be okay. But if anything does happen to me, I need you to vote for this guy. There's going to be an election. You need to vote for him. And he, and he pointed to Maduro. So... Um, you know, there's other very powerful political figures in Venezuela, like Diosdado Cabello, who, who, if you follow Venezuelan politics, you probably are aware of him. He's the vice president of the PSUV. You know, there's Tarek Alaysami. Uh, there's all, lots of people who are at the top of the political, who were at the top of the political ladder uh, at that time, who Chavez could have picked. And I think, you know, I, I don't know precisely why he picked Maduro in particular. I think probably... Um, I don't know. I'd like to think that he had an earnest belief that he wasn't going to be as dangerous to the country, maybe, as Diosdado Cabello. There was some some uh, indication that uh, Chavez and, and Cabello didn't see eye to eye a lot, right? Cabello is also like a really kind of uh, overbearing. He has a really strong personality as well. I think maybe Maduro was was the right sort of personality, like more deferential to his uh, to his leadership that. And maybe that's one of the factors that led Chavez to say, like, but for this guy, he's probably going to be okay. Um, but, you know, I think the book is, has yet to be written on that. I don't know that, uh, that we know for sure why precisely he picked Maduro. So around this time, the Venezuelan economy has become incredibly dependent on the sale of its oil. Uh, at this point, somewhere around 90% of the country's income is directly tied to it. So when Maduro comes to power, the economy starts to show some of the major problems we see today. Why is that? So there's a couple of things. Uh, uh, th- there was a collapse in oil prices uh, also in, in um, like right after Maduro came to power that, that directly affected the country's finances. So again, going back to the very beginnings of the discovery of oil in the country in the beginning of the 20th century, Venezuela's fortunes have have risen and fallen with the price of oil. So it just so happened that during the Chavez presidency, the you know oil prices had reached a historic high, right? So it's, it was it was relatively it was a very different financial project for Chavez to run the country when there was tons and tons of money coming in 
um, every month than when, when Maduro came to power and suddenly there wasn't that much money coming in. Uh, so that's one part of it. The other part of it is that Chavez was a leader and he had, you know, he had leadership um, uh, characteristics. He, he, he had a commanding presence and he could order people to do things and they would do it. People respected him. Um, and, um, and he, he had a reputation for getting things done. Right. So, uh, you might be familiar with a television show that he used to host and, uh, you know, sometimes he would be on the show and somebody would call in and they would say, you know, I, I'm from such and such town and we haven't had water in a week. And Chavez would, you know, live on the air order the, whoever the water authority was for that particular place to fix the water like right away because how dare you, you know, what's been happening, how, how come these people don't have water and the water would be fixed. But Maduro doesn't have any of that. He, he never really did. He wasn't um, um, a leader. Um, he isn't a leader. He doesn't have the skills that made Chavez a leader. He's sort of a goofy, um, I don't know, non-leader, I guess I would describe him as. And so uh, as the country begins to suffer this, this economic decline, is that is when precisely you would need somebody with strong leadership to get things done, to make sure that it doesn't, the project doesn't go completely off, off the rails. And he didn't have any of that. And so it really quickly got away from him. Um, but yeah, it was precipitated, I would say, primarily by the, by the fall in oil prices in, in, in 2014. The problems also began to really mount up with the country's currency, the Bolivar, going through hyperinflation. Can you explain what triggered this crisis? Yeah. Well, the inflationary crisis, um, yeah, it started to kick off in, in 2014. Um, at one point, we, we had the, uh, the highest inflation rate in the world. I think the, the, the inflation rate for the end of 2018 was over a million percent. Um, so that was a hyperinflationary territory. A part of the reason why that really um, uh, took off, the inflation rate took off in, in that way was because the government, again, speaking of like financial responsibility and, 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 and having like an, a, a people in power who actually kind of have an idea for what they're doing, uh, the Venezuelan Central Bank, which was um, like a lot of other financial institutions and economic institutions in the country under the control of people who were just loyal to the government rather than like experts in their field, um, just we started to pay for um, uh, the spending pro programs that the government was continuing to finance just by printing money. So if you talk to any economist, um, they'll tell you that like printing money, you know, just like hitting print, 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 and just like printing unlimited amounts of money is, is a really good way to have a, a hyperinflationary spiral. So that's one of the reasons that that uh, inflation shot up in that way. There was just too much money in the market and the government uh, knew this. Uh, and it didn't really do anything to stop it because they still needed money to finance these projects to keep government in power, right? So it was a circular, a circular, a vicious cycle that um, that led to this uh, in inflation spiral that again gave us the highest inflation rate in the world for that time. So now we get to 2018 and the crisis is in full swing, and in steps Juan Guaido, who goes on to become what in the West we would perceive as the opposition leader. Can you explain who Guaido is and how he rose to be the biggest challenger to Maduro? Yeah, so uh, Guaido's rise to power is a really remarkable story. One of the, you know, I, I, I'd say the biggest story of last year in the country for sure was his arrival at the national stage. So he had been involved in politics. Oh, he's actually from La Guaida, which is my, my hometown, as I explained earlier. Um, he had, he, he'd, been in, he'd been in parliament for a couple of years. 
And because the opposition won parliament in the 2015 election, um, they had a power sharing agreement that different parties um, in the opposition that every year a new party would get to have its one of its members be the, the president of parliament. And so for last year, it was uh, Juan, it was Guaido for the Voluntad Popular Party. So um, he, the, he, when he declared himself president at that event in early uh, last year, um, I think people abroad who are not familiar with constitutional law in Venezuela or the way that Venezuelan law in general works, it's very easy to see that moment as like, oh, this guy's just nuts. Like who declares himself president, right? Like that's just dumb. Like I can't just declare myself the prime minister of Canada. Like no one's going to sort of abide by that, right? But there was legal, there was a legal case to be made for that. Um, earlier, the National Assembly had voted that that Maduro had essentially vacated power um, through some of his actions. And um, according to the Venezuelan Constitution, if that determination is made, uh, then the president of the National Assembly becomes the president until there's an election to call um, to elect a new president, right? So that's all in the Venezuelan Constitution. So there is an argument to be made there uh, that 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 Guaido was doing and the opposition were following the letter of the law. Um, now, following the letter of the law, if you don't control any of the uh, coercive institutions of the state, is is um, it results in what we're seeing in the country now that you do have somebody who 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 calls himself the legitimate president of Venezuela. Whom over, you know, there's over 50 countries in the world who recognize Guaido as a legitimate president of Venezuela, uh, but who really has no um, ability to to assert um, any kind of power, right? So Guaido might declare something on television. He might say, "We're going to do this, or we're going to negotiate that with some international company, um, or or we're going to, uh, you know, open up diplomatic relations with such and such country." But because the military, because the courts. Um, are still with Maduro, his decisions don't have really any effect. And so we have uh, the deadlock that the country has been living through now for a year, where you, you almost have like two states operating side by side, but w one of them having legitimacy abroad, uh, but no power to affect um, its decisions nationally. And then another one that does have the power to affect its decisions nationally, but has very shaky a very limited recognition from abroad. So you mentioned the National Assembly there. And so for someone who might not understand how Venezuelan politics works, can you take us through how their government functions? Okay, so then let's talk about the branches of government in Venezuela. To simplify it, there's the three that you have in, in the US. Um, uh, there's the executive, the legislative, and the judicial branch. So starting in 2015, um, the opposition controls the legislative branch. They control Congress. Um, in the U.S., you have a bicameral Congress, so you have the House of Representatives and you have the Senate. Uh, you have the same in, in Canada. You have the House of Commons and you have the Senate. But in Venezuela, you have only one chamber. So it's, there's a, one Congress. It's like a Senate and a, and, and a House of Representatives combined. And so uh, in 2015, that flips to the opposition. So that's good news if you're an opposition supporter because that means that, that we now control one branch of government. The judicial branch had been firmly under the control of, of the PSUV, going back to the, the, the you know, 2003, 2004, 2005, is uh, the, the years after this coup attempt against Chavez. I mentioned earlier that that's when Chavez began to become more militant, a little bit more paranoid, justifiably so. And that's when he started to um, uh, pack the court with uh, uh, people who were just like blindly loyal to Chavismo, right? 
So the, the judicial branch is firmly under the control of the government. The executive branch is firmly under the control of the government because Maduro is the president, right? Uh, but now, starting in 2015, the, um, the, the legislature is under the control of the opposition. So if you're the government, that could be bad news because the legislature has a lot of power. They can pass laws. Um, they can, um, you know, pass laws not only that are, are like against the PSUV political project, but they can pass laws to like limit the power of the president, for example, or they can pass laws to bring in new judges to the Supreme Court, for example, so that it's not packed with um, regime uh, loyalists, right? So that so the government, uh, the Maduro government, gets really nervous starting in 2015, and one of the ways that they neutralize the legislature is by leaning really heavily on the on the judicial branch, on the courts, and in particular on the Supreme Court. So, uh, you know, through 2015, 2016, 2017, uh, any time that the opposition passed a law in the legislature, the Supreme Court would sh uh, strike it down. Like immediately after it was passed, sometimes the same day, they would say, no, this law doesn't make sense for any number of reasons, it's not valid. Um, so uh, we, that, that arrangement where um, um, the PSUV was trying to neutralize the opposition came to its peak, I think, um, in 2017 when Maduro created a brand new legislature, which is called the Constituent Assembly. Now, this is good. there's no analog, uh, sort of analogy that I can draw to the US or Canada because this is where it gets really complicated. But in 2017, Maduro says, you know what? We don't need the opposition legislature because it's full of like bad people anyways, the, op the opposition people, right? So let's create a new legislature and let's stuff it with our people. And that's the legislature that we're going to follow. So right now, the country really has two Congresses, the opposition one and the pro-government one. Um, and uh, that's been effective for the government. I mean, the, the fact that Maduro is still in power, I think, is, is, t is a testament to that. Um, and um, um, so backed by the courts that are, are pro-government and backed by this new legislature, which is pro-government, the Constituent Assembly, Maduro has been able to, to remain uh, in power and effectively neutralize the gain that the opposition um, won when it, when it won the National Assembly, the legislature. To challenge this, Wang Guaido, backed by a number of nations, including the USA and Canada, attempted a coup to overthrow the government but was ultimately unsuccessful at removing Maduro. Can you talk a bit more about this? Yeah, so one of the things, one of the first things that uh, Guaido had to do um, in order to sort of give himself an air of legitimacy was to, was to gain support from abroad. So the same day that he, that he um, claimed the presidency, the interim presidency, you saw the government of the United States, the government of Canada, and eventually over 50 countries saying, we recognize Guaido. So um, part of that international coalition building, I think eventually um, was geared towards convincing actors inside the government, like the military, like the police to say, look, I'm Juan Guaido, I'm supported by all of these countries abroad. If you help me get rid of Maduro, I'm going to become president. We're going to have an election and we can somehow maybe have like a power sharing agreement, right? Like get on the right side of history, right? Like look who's behind me, the US, Canada, the, U, the, the EU. Uh, so follow me. Let's get rid of Maduro. Let's get this over with. So I think uh, leading up to, to that uh, date, uh, Guaido and the opposition probably had a plan that involved people like 
the Minister of Defense is rumored to have been in favor of joining Guaido in this in this attempt to overthrow Maduro, and possibly even the president of the Supreme Court. So those are two of the most powerful people in the country. And so, again, we don't know this for sure, but I think the, the rumor, and one that I tend to believe, is that there were these very high players within the government who were willing to go along with Guaido and kick Maduro out of power. The popular retelling of that chapter in Venezuelan history is that for some reason, the opposition was forced to kick that plan into effect one day earlier than planned. I think originally it was planned for May 1st. So the way that the story goes is that all of these actors inside the government were ready to go on May 1st. The day before on April 30th, for whatever reason, the opposition said, no, we have to do it today. And when they pulled the trigger on that plan, then they started making phone calls. All these people who had allegedly committed to going out and getting Maduro out on May 1st backed out because they said, this is weird. Why are we doing it early? We're not ready today. And so that's why if you followed the event that day, Guaido was just like hanging out at this bridge, uh, this overpass near a military base in Caracas. And he was like, you know, we're waiting for people to come. Like we know people are coming. And I think I think they really were waiting for like the military to show up, like maybe these high-ranking PSUV figures, and they never really showed up. Um, so that's a popular retelling of that of that tale that that it was a plan that had been cemented. It was going to go ahead. It might have been even successful, but for some reason it had to. It was forced to kick off a day early, and very important people in government got scared and they said, "We're not coming out early. It's tomorrow or never." And so they never went out. Venezuela is spiraling further into crisis. The results of the last election have been cast aside. The US-backed coup was unsuccessful. And Maduro still sits upon the throne. Nothing about this situation is clear-cut, and there are too many questions still unanswered at this moment. Is Guaido a US puppet? What will Maduro do to fight the free-falling economy? And why is the military still standing by Maduro? But to answer all of that, we turn to our next guest. Part 2. The Silence Before the Storm I was warned beforehand that Caracas Airport is known to be possibly the most dangerous airport in the world. Most people who arrive from there, they'll have pretty extensive and pretty expensive private security that will take them from the airport to, into towns. Nick Much is a London-based, internationally published journalist specialising in foreign policy issues. He's written for publications including The Telegraph, The Sunday Times, Der Spiegel, and The Daily Beast. And he recently returned from Venezuela where he investigated the security situation and the migration crisis. And he joins us today. There is this perception in uh, promulgated by the media, and it came, I think, it's coming largely from a number of media reports that Venezuela is a complete hellhole, that, you know, there are riots on the streets every day, that absolutely nothing works. And that's not quite true. You know, you can still... A lot of basic pu public facilities will still work, you know. You still have things like running water. Petroleum is in... There are huge shortages of it, but it does exist. There is still food, for instance, in the supermarkets, but one of the things to note is you go in and the, stock, and the, the shelves are stocked with rice and bread and pasta and things like that. You don't have, you know, meat and vegetables and protein, you know, what you actually need for a steady diet. It's, it, most goods are well outside their price range. 
So when you crossed the border between Colombia and Venezuela, what was the biggest difference you noticed between them? To be honest, the noise. As in, when you're in Venezuela and people are walking around, so Latin America in general, you know, is very chaotic, it's very vibrant, there's loads of things going on, you know, you walk down the streets, loads of people are talking and they're trying to sell you things. When you get to Venezuela, no one is like that at all. Venezuela is probably the ultimate now of what we call like a low trust society. Everyone's very quiet. Everyone's very, has their heads down. They look very kind of nervous and timid. They walk very fast to where they're going. And it was that, it was just the fact that the buildings are very, you know, drab and run down. There are huge potholes in the roads that obviously haven't been repaired in years and years. Those two things were probably, it it was the demeanor and the character of the people that was the, that was the starkest difference that I noticed and how quiet everything is in compared to the rest of Latin America. So from being there, who seems to be the target of the protests? Who do they blame? Do they blame Chavez or Maduro or the US? You know, who is the national bad guy for the Venezuelan people? So in a way, Maduro was something of a victim of circumstance. So Chavez, who was in power, you know, nearly 15 years, he was lucky in two ways. One, he presided over the country during an oil boom. Venezuela, as we know, know, has the biggest oil reserves in the world. Oil under Chavez accounted for about 90% of of, uh, Venezuela's exports. It's less now with the US embargo and various sanctions. Chavez was a very whatever you can say about his policies, was a very, very good politician. He used the wave of anti-American sentiment that was created during the Iraq war to position himself as sort of an opponent of this sort of Yankee imperialism. He also coincided, which which is with what is referred to as the pink wave of Latin America, the, the sort of the rise of socialist and left-wing governments in other parts of, of Latin America, whether it's Lula in Brazil or Morales in Bolivia and Kirchner in Argentina. Now Maduro, who comes on the scene you know, in 2013, it was, he had no natural base of support that differentiated himself from Chavez. His only his his only qualification from the job was effectively being a competent administrator and minister and being about as loyal the most loyal to Chavez in his cabinet so he took on Chavez's responsibilities but while Chavez had overseen that period of growth and had built a political movement by himself Maduro had done none of that and just as he became president was when there was an oil a crisis in the price of oil. Oil dives by about 50%. And what are you left with? You're left with a government that now has to crack down on opposition and protests. You know, the Chavez government didn't invest anything in its infrastructure. It frittered away a lot of its oil money. And so Maduro's reign is when the bill came due, effectively. So yes, there's residual sympathy for Chavez because of what he could do while Venezuela's coffers were flush with oil money. But there's very, very little love for Maduro. So we hear many stories about the country's hyperinflation problem. 
but what is it really like on the ground there? So, two things to, to, to note there is that, one, you can effectively ignore the official exchange rate. Uh, some years ago, I don't remember the exact year, the Maduro go government imposed currency controls on the US on the US dollar, but because it was printing so much money to try and pay down its deficit, you know, everyone just ignored it and there became a sort of a black market. Now, what happens, what has happened actually over the last year or so is there has actually been a tacit dollarization of the economy. There was a, rep a Bloomberg report out just the other week that stated that something like 70% of transactions done in Venezuela are now actually done in US dollars and in foreign currency. Now, look, when you're there, it's an absolute nightmare if you're trying to pay for things in bolivares. You know, you, you, you literally need a stack of bolivares, you know, as thick as your arm to buy something like a bus ticket or, uh, you know, a meal in a restaurant or anything like that. And, of course, you can't use a foreign credit card because the credit you will be charged in the official exchange rate, which... You know, so you end up paying $100 for what would cost you $1. But actually, and there's also been signs that the government is is going to be willing to impose a tax on dollarized transactions. Now, what that is effectively doing is that is effectively a tacit recognition that the economy is going to have to effectively switch to the US dollar. And once that happens, the the bolivar will become it will become a worthless currency but that will allow the economy to somewhat stabilize now another thing is that because of the refugee crisis many of the refugees now work in in countries that you know in in the rest of latin america that do have a functioning economy and they've actually been sending remittances in foreign currency back to their back to their family or their friends on the ground in Venezuela. Here in the West, we hear a lot of stuff about Juan Guaido, but how is he perceived on the ground in Venezuela? There was one interesting thing. When I was walking around uh, Merida, there's a lot of political graffiti that's literally all over the city. And one thing that you will notice there's a huge amount of pro-Maduro graffiti, you know, anti-imperialism and down with Trump and down with fascism and all this. There's a huge amount, there's all, but there's also a small amount of opposition graffiti for politicians like Henri Falcón or Enrique Capriles or Leonardo López. These are names, you know, of, of opposition leaders or former uh, challengers to Maduro. Guaido isn't there. He, he, he's not mentioned anywhere. I didn't, fear to, I didn't talk to anyone who, who brought him up as... He's not a particularly... He's, not, he's n not seen as a particularly good politician, and he's seen as a little bit of a busted flush. After that April the 30th coup, which he was supposed to... He was effectively briefing that he was going to have, be able to turn the military against Chavez, well, he failed to, he failed to get any more than a single high pro, he, failed, he got one high profile defection from the Venezuelan, uh, from Maduro's inner circle, uh, the, the former head of the intelligence, uh, of, of the intelligence agency, 
But other than that, his coup really sort of fizzled out. And so people are a little, are kind of stuck with this leader who's not a very good politician, isn't very charismatic, doesn't seem to have any real influence in the country, yet the international community has backed him to a hilt. Saying that though, if you were to run free and fair elections tomorrow between Guaido and Maduro, who do you think would be the likely winner in that one? Okay, to the extent that you'd be able to get them in Venezuela, because it's a very, very big if, I imagine Guaido would win quite comfortably. But, because Guaido is, Guaido is not, like, disliked, as in people don't think he's, you know, a corrupt authoritarian. Everyone I've spoken to would take pretty much anyone else over Maduro. It's just that Maduro has the, has the support of the armed forces and, and has a lot of cronies at and his cronies effectively control every major industry in the country to the extent that there's industry left. So I would say that Guaido would walk home with it, but that's a very big, that's a very, very big if, if there could ever be free and fair elections in, in Venezuela at the moment. Well, if that's the case, why are the military still backing Maduro? Okay, so that's a very good question. And again, going back to Chavez, who Maduro effectively... Uh, Maduro inherited Chavez's authority, effectively. Now, Chavez himself was a military man, had very, very strong connections in the military, and after a, 2000, a, a coup, into a US-backed coup in 2002, where Chavez was removed, he made sure to purge the military of any elements to, of his regime, of any elements that were not loyal to his regime, effectively. And so everyone... Now, also, Maduro had, because of the amazing control, the extent of control that uh, Chavez and Maduro have had over the uh, over the economy, they have massive powers of patronage. So that they've appointed, you know, that they appointed. I think it was 2016. They sacked the head of of PDVSA, the Venezuelan oil company, and they put a, a, a high-ranking. Maduro loyalist general and as the head, you know, he didn't have any experience of running an oil company, but it, all that mattered was his loyalty. A lot of military leaders oversee things like drug trafficking, human trafficking, illegal mining, and they make major, major, major profits from those. And it's also the fact that, you know, the military has been implicated in a huge amount of human rights abuses. and. You know, if a, if a Guaido or whoever re or US-backed regime came in, these military men could potentially face prosecution for crimes against humanity. So it's been said that, they're not go that the military aren't going to die in a ditch for Maduro, but he's better the devil you know than the devil you don't. Just before Guaido's coup, we saw very, very large protests. So what are they like today? there was one major, major protest, and that's when Guaido appointed himself uh, interim president. Now, actually, over the last year, since the coups have fizzled out, the protests have actually gotten much smaller and much less frequent. And one of the reasons it's happened, and this is what, I've, what people in the exile community have said, is a lot of people have just given up. And so after the 2017 protests were, quite, were quashed violently, the main, the main body that would be there to do these protests have effectively left the country and looked for greener pastures elsewhere. 
So at the moment, there haven't been really any wide, any huge, large-scale protests since about January of last year. There certainly weren't any any signs of any protests when I was there. Busy, to be honest, people who are still there are too busy trying to survive. So a lot of pro-Maduro pundits point out that if Maduro is such a dictator, he would simply arrest or kill Guaido. Is there a reason he doesn't do that? It's a very good question, and no one, no one other than Maduro himself can really know the answer. So for one thing, it's certainly not out of magnam- magnanimity or the kindness of his heart. He's got a lot of form for... Uh, for taking away f- uh, for arresting his political opponents. So anyway, w- when would have been the most when would have been the mo- most obvious time to arrest Maduro? To arrest Gua- when would have been the most obvious time to arrest Guaido? It would have probably been after the failed org April coup. And why didn't he do it then? Well, back then you have to remember the US position, which is slightly different then as it is now. John Bolton was still very much the point man on Venezuela, and he effectively, you know, the mass, we all know, was a massive hawk, and he was effectively warning that the arrest of Guaido would be a red line and could possibly trigger US military intervention, and I think Maduro saw that and realised he'd be taking a risk. Now, there's another point as well, is that why make a martyr out of Guaido? What occurred to me was, well, you know about the Easter Rising in 1916. A group of Irish nationalists take control of Dublin for a few days until the rebellion is violently suppressed. Now, there wasn't actually a huge amount of support for them until the British decided to make an example of them by having them all executed and made into martyrs. Effectively, what Guaido had done is Guaido had played his hand, he'd shown himself to be a busted flush, and he became impotent and irrelevant. And the only way to make him relevant again would have been to arrest him, put him on trial, and make him a martyr for the opposition. As it is, he basically just embarrassed himself and showed that he would never be a contender. And unfortunately for the US or much of the international community, they're kind of stuck with this sort of impotent leader who can't really do anything because he's already played his hand and so it it almost suits Maduro to have you know to have Guaido in the position he's in now rather than you know risking triggering uh, even more international condemnation he effectively sees that if he rides out the next year or so he's got a, a, a good chance of maintaining his power Venezuela is in a tough position, and like most situations, it is now escalated beyond its own borders, with China, Russia, the US, and even Brazil now having huge interest on where the chips will fall when it all comes crashing back down. And to explain more about how the rest of these countries are involved, we turn to our next guest. Part 3. The Devil You Know Right now, basically, you're looking at a situation where the United States is confronting for the first time in a long time uh, a geopolitical uh, situation, a game, if you will, uh, within its own hemisphere. Uh, uh, This is what was originally just a matter of human rights and the erosion of democracy and eventually humanitarian crisis, as we're seeing in the last 
seven years has become a larger geostrategic issue. Dr. Chris Sabatini is a senior fellow for Latin America at the world-class geopolitical think tank of Chatham House in London. He is also a lecturer at Columbia University and sits on the advisory boards for Harvard and the Inter-American Foundation. And he joins us today. We see a, uh, a crumbling, ineffective, corrupt uh, regime uh, led by Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela that is receiving financial support from China, uh, which is mostly in this for the uh, economic benefits, but obviously sees this as a uh, major uh, challenge also to the United States policy and interests. But also you see a very strong connection with Russia in which, uh, because of sanctions that were imposed on Venezuela, oil sanctions, not individual sanctions, but were imposed on Venezuela by the U.S. this administration in uh, last year, uh, Russia and its oil company Rosneft has really swooped in to snatch up a lot of the oil investments uh, and assets in the country, uh, not just in the short term, but in the long term, and has sought to prop up the government with a real a modicum of uh, not much in terms of loans and financial assistance, but is really um, playing uh, U.S. interests uh, in many ways, I would argue, as a way of countering or at least uh, in ret retribution for uh, U.S. actions uh, concerning Russian actions in the Ukraine and in Eastern Europe. Moscow already has a huge amount of oil itself. So is Russia's involvement in Venezuela strictly a geopolitical move against Washington? That's exactly right. Russia is obviously uh, well endowed with its own uh, oil resources and natural gas resources. Doesn't really need it. It's reselling uh, much of the oil that it gets from Venezuela on the international market. It's doing it actually under <clears throat> under flagged, uh, ships that are flagged under a different uh, country so that it can evade uh, the U.S. and EU sanctions that have been placed on Russia itself. Uh, but it's doing this to be able to generate much needed hard currency for the Maduro government, uh, which according, I believe the last count I saw was it had as little as uh, $800 million uh, in its central bank and hard currency. So basically uh, Russia by, by uh, providing the investment and assistance and refining capacity for uh, Venezuelan oil is, is basically has thrown the Venezuelan regime a lifeline in terms of the uh, hard currency and oil sales that it needs. Um, and a lot of that oil is actually going, uh, as I mentioned, not to Russia, but actually to other buyers such as India, for example. And what do you think would happen to the Maduro government if Russia was to withdraw its support? Uh, the Maduro government, you know, it, it is clearly tenaciously hanging on to power in, in Venezuela. Uh, for a number of reasons. Part of it is a deeply polarized situation. Part of it is because the inner circle of, of, of Nicolas Maduro and, and large segments of the military are involved in all sorts of illicit activities from uh, um, narcotics trafficking to um, just out and out corruption, money laundering, um, oftentimes in, in collusion with uh, other illicit uh, brokers, in particular from Colombia. Um, so the, the Maduro government would try to stay in power uh, without uh, Russian support. It would find it very, very difficult because what we're seeing, especially in the last year or so, is a lot of the goods uh, that before were not available because of uh, Venezuela's lack of hard currency. Things like medicines and basic foods are now suddenly becoming available. Uh, and the primary reason 
is the access that Russia has given uh, to the Venezuelan government to hard currency that allows it to import these goods. It's important to recognize Venezuela produces very little of the foodstuffs and medicines that it needs. 95% of its export revenue comes from the export of uh, oil and oil-related products. So uh, they need uh, hard currency coming from oil, they need oil exports, and they need that to be able to buy these much-needed uh, goods that uh, citizens are demanding and that are in really scarce supply right now across Venezuela. What about China? Why is China so involved in Venezuela? Yeah, I think there are really three reasons for this. The first is, uh, ever since uh, Hugo Chavez was elected in 1998, he was sworn in in 1999, uh, China has uh, become really an, someone of an unwitting ideological ally uh, of the Chavez government in the sense that at the time, uh, China was really on a tear in terms of its economic growth uh, and economic development and reductions in poverty. And it really challenged the, at the time, conventional wisdom of the need to create markets and neoliberal reforms in order to grow. You know, for the, the decade previously, uh, Western powers and Western banks and multilateral banks such as the IMF and the World Bank were advocating indeed tying loans and assistance to reforms that uh, uh, stripped down the state, that created space for markets, that uh, guaranteed freedoms and proper and rule of law, and private property, and suddenly you had China come along and demonstrate that, it, that its economy, I don't think it's a model that's transferable, could develop. So first of all, there's that, that sort of ideological affinity that Chavez and Maduro had. The second is that China's in this largely for its own economic reasons. Um, China uh, needs resources. It is resource poor uh, to be able to grow, particularly at the rates that it's been growing. Uh, and, and, every, and it needs everything from foodstuffs, um, that's why it's become the principal trade partner of Brazil and Argentina, for example, beef, chicken, uh, uh, soy. Uh, but it also needs natural resources such as iron ore and, in this case, oil. And so China really swept in. And it did so in a very savvy way, uh, in part because of this ideological affinity I talked about, but also because of the need of Venezuela. It, it, it tied its, its investment in Venezuelan oil to long-term uh, oil markets. So, for example, there's a $40 billion loan that the Chinese gave, which the Venezuelans will repay over the course of decades at, um, uh, oil, at, in oil at below market price oil. So it's, it's locked in a source of oil um, at below market rates, all for the uh, really handsome price of a, a $40 billion loan. So there's economic and securing resources. The third reason is it, uh, there is also a geopolitical context to this. Now, China, unlike Russia, does not want to be seen as a, as a rival, uh, political rival, a diplomatic rival to the United States, or as aggressive as one. But of course, given uh, U.S. Uh, concerns over China's activities in the South China Sea, um, given uh, U.S. efforts to build allies and to, if you will, strengthen or tighten the cordon around China so that it can contain its more regional geopolitical ambitions, there's a certain amount of, of political capital that it gets out of having a client state, and that effectively is what Ch Venezuela has become, to China right in what the U.S. has traditionally called its backyard. So those would be the three primary reasons, an ideological affinity, uh, need for resources, and a, a, a just a, a hefty, nice excuse to be able to stick it to the United States in a very subtle way.
So a huge adjutant to Venezuela's problems is the US's very heavy sanctions against the oil industry and the government of Venezuela. But these sanctions are similarly heavy to the ones we see placed against Iran. So why is it that with similar sanctions, Iran has a functioning state, but Venezuela is rapidly collapsing? <laughs> That's a very good question. I think the answer has to do fundamentally with competence. A former president of a country I won't name uh, once said to me, he goes, the problem with Venezuela isn't left or right or socialism versus markets. It's basically the problem in Venezuela is the competence of the leadership class right now. And I think that's true. I've met many, many of them uh, at the highest levels and at the more working level. Um, and it really is an issue of, of competence. The, um, you don't have at a time when two thirds of the economy has shrunk, has, has vanished since 2013, at a time when inflation last year was raging around 10,000%, uh, at a time when the entire uh, social service structure has completely cratered, education, healthcare, and the like, you do not have one economist in the government. <laughs> not, not that economists have all the answers, but you, you know, there's, there's no technocratic capacity in the government. And in fact, the uh, person who's running PDVSA, which is the Venezuelan now state oil company, is a, is a military officer, uh, having no uh, previous experience in running either corporations or an oil uh, production. Um, at the same time, you also have a uh, what was a haphazard process of nationalizations that occurred first under Chavez and Maduro, nationalization of food production, of dairy production, um, which were not sort of done, you know, as much as the government, Venezuelan government likes to claim this is a socialist government, uh, was not done with any sort of broader ideological scheme of socialism. It was done often out of spite, um, out of political um, uh, retribution. Um, and, and out of necessity, and consequently, there is no sort of organized principle to all this. And the third reason really is, and it's tied to competence, which is corruption. Um, just the, the stories of the uh, both uh, companies and state officials that have gamed what was a very complicated, multi-tiered uh, currency system, exchange uh, rate system of uh, officials that uh, sold what were completely uh, uh, corrupted uh, bonds for uh, projects that never came to fruition, whether in electricity or corporate bonds and the like. Um, and of course, the, the, the very uh, um, credible allegations of illicit markets and narcotics and arms trafficking um, that occurs both at the local level. Um, the, a lot of the, the states on the Colombia-Venezuelan border, a lot of this occurs, are governed by military officers, uh, but occurs also at, a, obviously, a national level. Um, that level of corruption, uh, and you hear the stories and the numbers, and it's difficult to fathom, uh, has clearly siphoned off billions of dollars from the Venezuelan economy, uh, and uh, oftentimes to offshore banks, and has created all sorts of uh, economic dysfunction, uh, which Iran doesn't share. So let's talk about Juan Guaido. The international community seems to have jumped behind him in lockstep and is fully supporting him, even though he doesn't have a huge amount of popular support inside the country itself. You know, why would the international community be so dedicated to jumping behind Guaido? Uh, let's. We have to recognize that the lack of public expression, even 
in terms of people protesting in the streets, given what has happened, um, is not any indication of his actual uh, popularity or, or, or uh, perhaps more importantly, the lack of desire for political change. Um, having said that, um, you know, the, he, Guaido has also been somewhat of a victim of, of I think, the oppositions and in some elements in the, the international communities, uh, uh, some somewhat facile uh, notion of how political change would occur in Venezuela. So because of that, he's overplayed his hand. Uh, na the National Assembly swore him in in January 23, uh, 23rd, uh, 2019, as a legitimate interim president of Venezuela, citing a clause in the Constitution. After that, he engaged in a whole series of public demonstrations calling and brought tens if not hundreds of thousands of people to the streets on calling for political change. Uh, that never happened. Uh, that never happened because of repression, that never happened because of the corruption and uh, uh, repression within uh, Maduro's inner circle and within the armed forces. And, and, and as a result, his political capital has really waned. Um, but for the United States and for many others who rushed to recognize him after January 23rd, there's a sense that he was the, the only hope they had. Uh, this is a country that has steadily deteriorated, uh, both in terms of its economics and in terms of its uh, uh, politics, in terms of democracy and human rights, uh, without any sort of exit, if you will, um, and a clear sort of exit path. And, and Juan Guaido's inauguration provided many of them that possibility. Um, but it, it was, it, you know, I think they overbet. And so as a result, there's still a belief that this is the only game in town. Absent any good faith effort by the military and by the opposition to negotiate uh, some sort of exit for Maduro based on human rights and respect for and release of political prisoners and respect for free and fair elections, um, uh, doubling down on Guaido, Guaido really remains the only game in town for now for much of the international community. Um, since it is already committed to him, it needs to show that it's not wavering in its support. To do so would be an admission of failure. Juan Guaido's coup fell mostly because of his lack of support from the military. Why do you think the military refused to back him? Well, the truth is, is I, I don't think that was ever in the cards. I think, you know, you're reading uh, Reuters published uh, in uh, mid-February, a very good report on uh, the collaboration between the Cuban security forces, intelligence forces, and the Venezuelan uh, military, which even they had signed as, as uh, MOUs, Memorandum of Understanding, which Cuba provided uh, uh, support to spy on and maintain the loyalty of the armed forces. At the same time, as I mentioned, you have uh, just dizzying levels of, of corruption uh, of the military, both in terms of just uh, out and out sort of classic taking of bribes, but also uh, engagement in illicit activities, um, that the military would somehow swing its support behind a, uh, behind a political change. It would put it at risk of being both called out and perhaps uh, uh, repressed by uh, Cuban agents or uh, loyal uh, agents, loyal officers to Maduro, but also put them at risk of being jailed for uh, criminal activities. The idea that they would do that was at best naive, was at worst just out and out ignorant. And in the end, I would argue, dangerous. So earlier on in the Trump administration, when John Bolton was still in the White House, 
There were calls from both himself and Trump to launch a US invasion of Venezuela via landing troops in Colombia with the aim of overthrowing the government in Caracas. Uh, do you think there was any logic to that move or was it just bluster for the press? Uh, you know, we don't know how uh, people would respond to a US military invasion, um, but it, basically, uh, John Bolton and even Donald Trump's uh, whispering campaign of a potential U.S. intervention um, was just out and out bluster. I think it was a um, part of it was just uh, born out of ignorance. Um, Trump openly mused about all options being on the table. I think he didn't realize that uh, Venezuela is not to the size of Panama. Um, in which the then President George H.W. Bush invaded. It's not the size of Grenada, the small Caribbean nation that uh, Ronald Reagan. It is a large 28 million at least uh, uh, populated uh, country um, and very diverse. But also it, it, um, it was a, a really, I'll be honest, a pathetic amateurish attempt at uh, psyops, at psychological operations, trying to rattle the Maduro government, trying to think, well, the, the U.S. could intervene at any time, um, when in fact it was impractical um, and, and dangerous, um, and in fact it didn't have that effect. And so I think a lot of that was just out and out amateurish, to be honest. But the other thing it had was the effect of um, being able to allow Maduro to paint himself again as a victim of U.S. imperialism, of which there is a long and tragic history in the United States, uh, in the region rather, from the United States intervention. Um, rally the troops, it had a, I think it had the effect of, of delegitimizing or undercutting the legitimacy of Guaido, who's, who's since come out and said he does not in, in endorse a U.S. military intervention. But it also, it, it sparked a very false sense of uh, an alternative among the opposition, not so much Guaido, but other elements of the opposition that actually believe this was going to happen. And so as a result, they uh, stopped a lot of the difficult work of trying to force a negotiation uh, with the government. They uh, pulled back, I think, from a lot of the, the difficult work of political organization and mobilization, hoping that uh, some uh, knight in shining armor, in this case, uh, I guess, wearing camouflage and with the U.S. flag emblazoned on their, on their shoulders, would uh, um, come to their rescue. And that was never going to happen. It was never in the cards. It was completely irresponsible. To, to insinuate that or to even claim it. And as I say, it was out and out amateurish uh, because it was never going to happen. So in that case, what would it take to overthrow Maduro's government? This is a government, Maduro government, that is completely illegitimate, that has violated many of the international norms and, and, and expectations of democracy and human rights, um, that has inflicted um, historic suffering, not just in the country, but in the region, on its people, created the worst uh, uh, humanitarian crisis in recent history without uh, unprovoked by war. Um, but yet he remains solidly in power, in part because of the geopolitical game that Russia and China are playing, in part because of missteps by the United States, in part because of, I think, some miscalculations by the opposition, but in large part also because of the uh, very cruel, inhumane uh, tactics of this government. How does it leave power? I don't know. It's managed to corrupt many of the levers of power, including the military and the police, 
It's managed to close down political and civic space. Um, it's managed to uh, violate and hollow out many of the checks and balances on power, including an electoral authority um, that in a more uh, natural situation, because there are supposed to be national assembly elections this year, um, would uh, serve to guarantee uh, rights of freedom of expression and political participation in a, a level playing field for elections. That doesn't exist. So even an electoral route right now under the current conditions is very, very difficult. I personally think uh, the only sane, stable way out of this is for the international community to collectively gather around and to advocate for a negotiated solution that calls for a uh, basically either uh, Maduro stepping down in the short term or the reconstruction of a, a credible independent electoral system for the convening of national assembly elections. But that mediated solution has to involve the credible threat of sanctions as well as the credible carrot of lifting sanctions. And that means the United States, which rushed, as I said earlier, to impose sanctions on the government when it thought that the Maduro government was going to topple because of uh, Guaido, the US needs to be willing to pull back on those. It needs to offer genuine carrots pulling back on those sanctions. And it needs to be able to do that in collaboration with its other partners, both in the region, in the Group of Lima, as well as the European Union, as well as the UK uh, and other countries. And it needs to do that on the basis of human rights with a very specific targeted set of steps that would lead to some form of electoral exit that involves first respect for political rights, release of political prisoners, um, and also the, the um, convening uh, organization of an independent, uh, credible International Election Commission and independent election monitors, international election monitors. Um, I also think, uh, and on this is the very difficult task, is that you know many of the people in the Maduro government have very legitimate fears, legitimate in the sense that people do want there to be some form of justice for their human rights abuses and for their uh, 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 corruption and their ill-gotten gains to pay uh, the price. Uh, there may need to be some uh, um, arrangement that allows them to uh, escape or to uh, disappear quietly into the woodwork um, and not have, because as long as they fear um, you know, hanging from the lampposts in any form of transition, they're not going to give up power willingly. And you can't blame them. That's just human nature. So there needs to be some, some element uh, and recognition of the need for reconciliation and not just retribution. The best analogy I have ever heard to describe Venezuela relates to the Greek myth of Icarus. The man who invents wax wings, but then flies too close to the sun. He melts the wings and he comes crashing back to earth. Venezuela had their future served them on a platter, where the oil wealth could have been used to set the country up as a Latin island in a sea of South American instability. They could have trodden the same path that Norway did before them and brought peace and prosperity to their nation, but they didn't. This wasn't a socialist problem. This wasn't a fascist problem. This was just plain mismanagement from a government struck with anger and paranoia after the first of many 
US attempts to retake control of what it views as its own backyard. Now, Pedavesa is rotting, oil production is low, and the country is beholden to the governments in Moscow and Beijing for its mere survival. Even worse though, that there doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel for the Venezuelan people either. Guaido failed, and is now a spent force, all while the US parades him around and tries to pretend they didn't back the wrong horse, and they didn't fall on their own face. Protests are dying simply because the hope is dying out, and the country seems to just be accepting the grim path laid out before its feet. The hope now lies in major change in US policy and the offering of an olive branch from an administration more accustomed to handing out economic pressures than rewards. For the sake of the Venezuelan people and for its South American neighbors, I hope we can find a solution to a problem that has been boiling for 40 years. But I don't hold my breath. Thank you so much to everyone who tuned into this episode. It was a little longer than usual, but it was an immense topic to cover, and we wanted to give you the full briefing. If you like the longer episode, feel free to let us know on our social media at the Redline Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can hit myself up directly at Mike Hilliard Oz on Twitter, or simply comment below as it really helps us keep up the momentum we're seeing from the show. Another thanks to our amazing guests for jumping onto this episode. You can check out Giancarlo's amazing work with Bellingcat on his Twitter, at Gian Fiorella, or on his blog, in-venezuela.com. Nick Much has a wide variety of articles and works, which we shall link on our Twitter, and it was amazing to have him on the program. I have known Nick personally now for almost four years, and I cannot speak more highly of him and his fantastic library of work. Christopher was a huge guest for the show, and we are incredibly grateful to both him and Chatham House for their help with this episode. You can follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Sabatini for more information. As usual, a big thanks goes out to Mark Spencer, who provided the additional vocals for this episode. And you can check out more of his great voice at the Climactic Podcast. And I highly recommend you do so. Thank you so much again to all of our listeners and friends who also donate to the show via Patreon. Every dollar you donate comes with awards. And it helps us keep the lights on here, as well as use the resources to chase bigger and better stories for you guys. We'll be back in a fortnight's time with another international episode. But for now, thank you and good night.